Would you give a big welcome to Nate Gallagher as he comes up here and shares the word this morning. Thanks, buddy. And he's more of a true surfer than I am because I'm not one. But hey, buddy, good to see you, man. <laughs> All right. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. And um, just would like to say uh, just thank you to Josiah and Kimber for having me. And um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. I don't know if you know that. And uh, they're not going to tell you about it, so I'm going to tell you about it. It's a great opportunity for you to just thank and honor um, the leaders of this church. And so thank you guys. Thanks for having me. And it's so exciting for me to come into to season. I got to come in, like, what was it, the second week you guys were doing church online? Um, and uh, just watching them lead through this moment and this season and uh, just with a heart for you guys and for the body and for the community. And it's just exciting to be a part of it and to come back in person. It's so exciting. And um, so thanks. Yeah, um, we're going to be at John 16. And uh, you guys just kind of finished up a series talking on the idea of um, Jesus and discipleship, being with him, becoming like him, and then ultimately doing what he would do if he were here. And so that is, I mean, that is Christianity. That's what we're here for. We want to be with Jesus. I had a friend challenge me just recently, and it's just been like, you know when there's those things that just plague your mind, everything you do? Um, and there's the verse in Psalm that says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your, your heart. And just kind of like challenging me with, are you delighting in the Lord? And it's so easy for us to get preoccupied in doing things for God that we forget just that true sense of relationship of being with him. And so now it's like everything I do is like, is this, am I delighting in the Lord? Um, so being with him, becoming like him, and that's ultimately how it happens, being with him. You become like him, just like in any circle of friends, you become like those you hang out with, um, and then doing what he would do. So such great practical understanding for us as we walk with Jesus. And I want us to look at another teaching of Jesus that really what he offers as we walk with him and seek to become more like him. So in John 16 is where we're going to be. Now this is the upper room discourse. That's sort of the theologian name of this teaching series of Jesus. And uh, this is his final teaching before he is crucified. And then what we're going to pick up is the last part of his last teaching. Right, so this is the last thing Jesus is going to say to his disciples. After these moments, he's going to pray. Then he's going to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. So the last part of his last teaching. So needless to say, this is super important. Right? This is the last thing Jesus really wants us to get before he is led away and crucified. So with that, I think we should really attempt to lean in and press into what Jesus wants to say to us um, this morning. And I want to talk on this subject. If you take notes, this is my title. Promises that we can hold on to promises that we can hold on to. Now, um, we're going to kind of cover quite a bit of verses. I'm going to break it up in sections, but we're going to cover quite a bit. So if you missed your morning reading, I got you covered this morning. So we're going to get lots of scripture in this morning. Um, but so bear with me. We're going to read portions of scripture. We're going to talk about it, read another portion of scripture, talk about it. Sound good? All right. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of times, like, are you with me? Sound good? Give me an amen. Like, you can wave your hand like this if it speaks to you. Like, anything just to make, make me know that you're awake and you're with me. Um, all right, so John 16, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, remember, he's talking to his disciples. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The first promise that I want us to see, the promise that we can hold on to, is the promise of truth. The promise of truth. Jesus tells us that he is unfinished in his teachings. Right? So this is his last teaching. He's about to be crucified. Um, we will see that he's got a few more conversations that are recorded for us after his burial and resurrection. But this is one of his final teachings. But he says, my teachings are unfinished. So Jesus, he, he came here with a task to do. Ultimately, the goal, the reason he came was for the cross, right? This was the way that man could be reconciled again to God. So the reason he is here is for the cross. That hour is coming. It's here. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die for the sins of humanity. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, okay, there's a lot more things that I would like to say to you. I'm not done. Now, it is an interesting concept to pause and think about like, whoa, Jesus didn't say all that he wanted to say. You would think that, I mean, he's God. You would have like maybe time managed a little better. Like there's still things you wanted to say and you're unable to say it. And Jesus says, hey, there's more things I want to teach you, but I, I don't have the opportunity to do it now. But here's the thing. This doesn't mean that Jesus' teachings or his message didn't get finished, right? He says, there's more things that I would like to say to you. That doesn't mean it's incomplete. That doesn't mean that there's parts like, oh, if Jesus didn't get to say it all, then are we confused? Are we missing something? Are we lost? No, Jesus, although he wasn't able to say it, doesn't mean his message didn't get finished. He tells us that the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, would speak to the disciples and guide them in all things. Now, this thought kind of blew my mind recently. It's not that profound. You guys are going to be like, really? That blew your mind? Um, but it, this just kind of like I realized this recently, that Jesus didn't write any books of the Bible. Right? We know that. You're like, yeah, duh. There's no book of the Bible called Jesus. Like, yeah, I know. Um, but you would think, like if we we're just being practical for a moment, you would think that God in flesh with his message for humanity, you would think that he would take some time to write it down for himself. Like, hey, disciples, you're good. Like, but come on, you're fishermen, you're tax collectors, you're zealots, you're kind of weird. I don't know if I can trust you to get my message across for all of humanity for the rest of time. But Jesus, he didn't, he didn't write anything down. He basically lived his life, and then he says, hey, once I leave, um, then the Holy Spirit's going to help you do this. His followers wrote the Bible about him, the Gospels, and then the epistles are writings about what Jesus taught and did. So we have the Gospels, this is his life, and then the epistles are basically like, this is how we sort of consume that and understand and, and live those things out. They're written from people directed by the Spirit of God. So listen, the entirety of the New Testament is the fulfillment of this promise from Jesus. He says, hey, there's things that I would like to say to you, but I don't have time. I, you, you, you can't bear them right now. So what's going to happen is, is I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. Then I'm going to ascend. After I ascend, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus. And he will 
teach you all things. And from that moment on, the people empowered by the Spirit of God, guided by the Spirit of God, then took pen and paper and they wrote down from the direction of the Spirit of God. The Word says that, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So they would write it down. And now we, the Bible that we have, is the fulfillment of this promise. And the teachings of the New Testament is truth. And because it's the word of God, and because it is truth, it can guide and direct our lives. The question I think I want to pose for us today is, is how can we trust that the New Testament is actually the word of God and accurate to the teachings of Jesus? Right? Because again, Jesus didn't write it down. I think we'd have a little more confidence if, if Jesus wrote these things down. Jesus said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to pour out my spirit, you guys are going to write it down, and then we're going to trust that it is accurate to the heart of Jesus. Now, a couple of things that I want to, so we're going to get kind of like uh, uh, Bible school for a moment. Is that cool? I'm going to break down some practical Bible things that you learn uh, in Bible college. All right, number one, the scripture confirms the Bible as God's word. The scripture within itself confirms the Bible as God's word. A couple of verses to sort of show you. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth confirms that the scripture, the writings of the New Testament, the gospel accounts that are writing and recording the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happen according to the, what? What word does he use? Scripture. He re references it as scripture. This is the word of God. It's referencing all the gospel accounts. Peter would say it like this, 2 Peter 3.16 as also in all his epistles, talking about Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scripture. So Peter, writing about, I love that he kind of like throws shade a little bit at Paul. He's like, sometimes it's a little confusing. I'll give you that. But the writings of Paul, he says, they are Scripture. He, he categorizes them with the rest of Scripture. So Peter, early on, recognizes the writings of Paul as Scripture, and Paul recognizes early on that the writings of the gospel as Scripture. And then finally, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, it means breathed out by God. So the Scripture itself claims within itself that this is the Word of God, that this, just is, this isn't just ancient literature, this isn't just ideas, this isn't just life principles, this isn't just morality, good versus evil, anything like that. This is the written, living, breathing Word of God. So we can trust that when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to pour out the Spirit, He's going to teach you all truth, that the Word of God that we have is the truth. Um, the second thing that helps us understand this is that the early church accepted it as the Word of God. So the Bible claims within itself that it's the word of God, but then the early church, which is the model for how we do church, um, is accepted the word of God. Um, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they, this is the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. They recognized the writings of the apostles 
as the word of God, and it was a part of the early church's practice. They would get together, they would have food, they would have a coffee bar, they would have water, they would hang out, they would talk, they would pray, and then they would have the apostles' doctrine, the word of God that they would discuss together. So the word of God confirms that it is the word of God. The early church accepted it as the word of God. And then the third thing I would say is through personal testimony. The third way we can trust the Bible as the word of God is by the impact it has on individuals. Listen to this quote. This is Norman Geisler in his book, From God to Us. He says this, quote, Another internal evidence offered as proof of the Bible's inspiration is the ability to convert the unbeliever and to build up the believer in faith. Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Untold thousands have experienced this power. Drug addicts have been cured by it. Derelicts have been transformed. Hate has been turned to love by reading it. Believers grow by studying it. The sorrowing are comforted. The sinners are rebuked. And the negligent are exhorted by the scriptures. God's word possesses the dynamic, transforming power of God. And God vindicates the Bible's authority by its evangelistic and edifying powers. That the word of God has life transforming power because it's living and it's active. And so when Jesus says that, that he is going to pour out his spirit, the spirit of truth, and when he comes, he is going to guide you and direct you in all truth, we can confirm that one, the word of God that we have is God, the Bible that we have is God's word. We can trust it. And because we can trust it, we can then use it to navigate and to direct our life. In a world with so much untruth, with so many lies and hypocrisy and falsehoods and, and things that are unclear, we can have the word of God as a foundation and as a direction for our life. And I would think that so often we get so consumed with the things that go on around us, the ups and downs and the things that we don't understand, the things that we like to understand, the things that we're confused by, and we can allow the word of God to be that anchor, that foundation for us to then guide and direct our life. So we have the promise of truth. In a world filled with, with lies and hypocrisy, we have the promise of truth from Jesus. The word of God, we can hold on to it. Now Jesus continues. Pick up in verse 16. Jesus, he's still talking to the apostles. He says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while you'll not see me. And again, a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, um, what is that he says a little while? We don't know what he's saying. I love that they just are talking to each other, but they're not to him. They're like, any, you guys know what he's talking about? <laughs> now, Jesus knew, verse 19, that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you not see me? And again, a little while you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take away from you. And in that day, you will ask me uh, 
And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Second promise I want us to see is the promise of joy. So we have the promise of truth that will guide and direct our life. But then he also gives us a second promise, the promise of joy. Now, Jesus speaks on the sorrow that they will experience, and he's speaking specifically to his death. And for a little while, they will be without him, and they will experience sorrow. And this sorrow will be due to loss of relationship, right? Their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, their, their, their savior, the one that they thought, this was the guy, this is who we've been waiting for, this is who we've been praying for. And now their friend is gone. Right? They, they left everything. The story in the Gospels of the, the apostles literally leaving everything and following Jesus shocked me every time I read them. Because especially in some of the Gospels, there's no real backstory. Jesus just walks up to them like, hey, man, follow me. I'm like, all right. They leave their business. They leave their life. They leave everything. And for three and a half years, they just follow this guy around. They just listen to him. They just take everything that they care for. So their friend, they've walked through good times and bad times. They've shared meals together. They've seen miracles together. They've heard the most profound teachings that their mind could comprehend. And now that relationship, they're losing him. And their sorrow also, not just to loss of relationship, but also loss of hope. They thought this was the guy. They put all of their stock in him. Like they're like, okay, we're selling our boats. We're giving up our practice. Like, we're done. We are following after Jesus because he is Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. And then they're going to lose him. And their sorrow would be lost due to loss of hope. And I'm sure many of us have experienced sorrow and perhaps from similar causes. Sorrow due to loss of relationship. Sorrow due to loss of hope. And Jesus, he identifies this as real and as painful, but then there's the promise of joy. He says specifically that their sorrow would be turned to joy, that their deep level of sorrow would then make way for joy. The promise of Jesus here is not that there won't be sorrow, but that through relationship with him, he can turn sorrow to joy. But notice the joy is directly connected to the sorrow. They will experience sorrow due to the loss of Jesus, but they will experience joy due to the resurrection of Jesus. So the, the sorrow and the joy is connected, that, that, that the, the sorrow will then make way for joy. About a year ago, um, we went on a mission trip to England, and we were a part of a, a, a thing called Creation Fest. And um, we were out there for about 10 days doing music and things like that. Well, we were, the, the festival was done, and we were heading back to London where our flight was. And we were driving. I was driving on the wrong side of the car and on the wrong side of the road, um, and I was really confused. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just wrong. Like, we drive on the right side. They drive on the wrong side. That's the way it works. And so I'm driving, and all of a sudden, like, we're making good time. It was like a five- or six-hour drive. We're making good time, and then things start to slow down, traffic. Now, in Vero, where I'm from, we don't really experience traffic. I know you guys deal with traffic. I don't understand traffic, and I will take that to my grave. And I know you could come up to me afterwards and be like, well, this is how traffic works, Nate. But I just think, like, if people would just keep driving, then there wouldn't be traffic. You know what I mean? Like, just, just don't stop. And just keep moving, and then we won't have traffic. So whatever, you can explain it to me afterwards, but it doesn't matter. 
So we're driving and we're stuck in traffic on the wrong side of the road and things are going really slow and I'm frustrated. Like, come on, like we gotta get there. Well, all of a sudden we come around a corner and we're on this main highway, we're almost like in a dead stop. We come around the corner and we look to our left and literally Stonehenge is right there. You guys know Stonehenge? It's like one of the marvels of the ancient world, like these rocks, like how did they get there? I just read an article that people like, I think we know how they got there, but that's besides the point. but we like came around the corner and literally like, there is Stonehenge. And everybody in the car was asleep. And I'm like waking them up like, guys, it's Stonehenge. Like we just, I didn't know it was here. Do you know it's, I didn't know it's there. Like here it is. And then all of a sudden we like came, we saw it. We like slowed down. We're like, this is amazing. We came around the corner and, the, and traffic sped up. And like the traffic was gone because they, everyone, it like made sense. Like, oh, everyone's slowing down to see like an ancient wonder of the world. Like I can deal with traffic if, if the reason for it was like literally this marvel. And then we kept going. Now most traffic isn't like that, right? It's just like, who knows why traffic happens. Anyways, um, but it was because of, of this, this marvel and everyone was excited, we kept moving. But I was frustrated in the car because of traffic, but then that frustration made way to joy because I'm like, this is incredible. But my, my frustration and my joy was directly connected, right? My frustration was traffic, but then my joy was, well, there's traffic. I got to slow down and see this incredible, uh, like modern marvel. And the reason I'm saying that is because what I want us to see and what Jesus is explaining to us is that the joy that we will experience will be directly connected to the sorrow that we'll walk through. And Jesus promises that the sorrow that we go through in this context will then turn to joy. Our frustration will be connected then with our joy. And I think we need to understand that there is a promise from Jesus that he wants to turn sorrow to joy. And that the things that have brought us sorrow and the things that have brought us pain and the things that have brought us frustration, Jesus can and he is able and he desires to turn that sorrow then into joy. And Jesus also explains the way we experience this. There at the end, he says, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's talking about praying specifically in the name of Jesus, which is a powerful declaration once again of his deity, right? If he's saying you can pray in my name and you can expect God to answer you. But he's putting an emphasis on prayer during sorrow. Prayer during those difficult times. And Jesus promises sorrow that has turned to joy. If you are experiencing sorrow, maybe it's due to loss of relationship. Maybe it's due to loss of hope. Whatever it is, if you are experiencing sorrow, continue to seek Jesus. There is a promise that he turns sorrow to joy. And oftentimes the joy we will experience is directly connected with the sorrow that we have experienced. That the deep level of sorrow will then make way for a deep level of joy. All right, last section. Are you guys with me? Is this making sense? Okay. Verse 25 says this. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from God. 
I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answers, Do you now believe? Like, this is, this is the last night we have together. You finally get it. Three and a half years we've been walking together, and you finally get it. He says, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Final promise I want us to see is the promise of peace. So we have the promise of truth, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit that will teach us in all things, in all truth. We have the word of God to be a compass, a direction for our life. He wants to give us joy, and he wants to turn sorrow that we experience into joy in relationship with him. And then Jesus here speaks very openly about what is going to happen. Now, he came from the Father, he's going to return to the Father, and Jesus is aware of what is happening, right? He, we know that he needed to go to Jerusalem, like this, his hour has come, he knows the reason he's going there, and he's sort of letting the disciples in on exactly what is going down. Now, this is not the first time they would have heard this. Jesus tells them quite often that his time is short, and he tells them very specifically of what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that uh, he's, going, he's going to Jerusalem. He will be betrayed by the scribes and Pharisees. He will be condemned to death. And then three days later, he'll rise again. Like he literally says that to them. Hey guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to be crucified. But three days later, I will rise again. And in that, in that section... And Mark, Jesus says it like as plainly as he says it. And then two of the apostles, immediately after he makes that statement, two apostles go, hey, um, that's cool. Anyways, um, do you think we could sit on your right hand and your left hand? Like when you, okay, dead, resurrection, that's great and all. Um, But when you get into your kingdom, can we sit, our mom wanted us to ask you, can we sit um, on your right hand and on your left hand? Like, literally, that is how the story unfolds. Jesus is like, hey, guys, just, like, can we have a heart-to-heart for a moment? Um, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. They're like, okay, um, where do we sit in heaven? <laughs> Jesus, over and over, he's, like, very clear and articulate with the apostles. And here's another moment. He's like, hey, this, it's happening. It's going to go down like this. This is where it's all headed. He spoke plainly to prepare them for what's going to happen. But he's also warning of the trouble that would come to him and to them. And he gives us a warning in these verses. He says, they will have tribulation. That is not a fun word. A tribulation is not a fun word. That song we are singing this morning, I love it, but it also terrifies me. The one that says, I want to be tried by fire. I'm like, that's nice, but I really don't. Like, I'm like, careful. Like, be careful when you sing songs like that. God's like, you want to be tried by fire? All right. Trial by fire. Like, you know what you're asking for, right? Tribulation is a scary word. It literally means oppressing or squeezing together. It is opposition and pressure from things around us. And this is, technically, this is the promise from Jesus. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have 
trouble. And his life will be an example of that. But then Jesus says, you will have trouble, but then he offers us peace. Right? He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have pressing and squeezing and hard times. It will be difficult. But, but he says, be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world, and you can have peace in me. The promise is actually for trouble, and Jesus offers us peace. Now, here's the big difference that I want us to see this morning um, between the promise of sorrow and joy and tribulation and peace. What Jesus really refers and references when sorrow and joy is he, he says that your sorrow will then re, be replaced with joy. Right. So at one point there was sorrow and I want to replace that with joy. The promise of peace and tribulation is completely different. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're going to have tribulation, but I'm going to replace the tribulation with peace. What he promises is that in the midst of tribulation, you will have peace. So he says, I'm going to take your sorrow and I'm going to give you joy. But in this setting, you're still going to have trouble. You're still going to have tribulation. But don't worry, I'm going to supply you with peace in the midst of it. So the promise is it's different, but it's just as profound, just as powerful and just as important. Because we live in a world where we are we are familiar with trouble and tribulation. Right. This world, this this world, this year, this moment, like we, we can zoom out and talk about like our whole world, our whole country is experiencing tribulation. But then also like right now in homes and in individuals and in lives, there's there's trials and tribulation. Like we're not, we're no stranger to it. And then Jesus promises, he says, I want to give you peace in the midst of it. Listen, this is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of peace. And Jesus tells us exactly how we can experience that. He says, in this world, we have trouble. And the worship team, you guys can come up here. I'm closing right now. Um, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says this, in me, you will have peace. And he says, for be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He says, in this world, you are in this world, you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. But in me, you will have peace. The presence of peace is found in Christ. It makes it abundantly clear. He says, in the world, if you're in the world, you're going to have tr trouble, it's going it's to be hard. But in me, you will have peace. And in him, that idea, it's not just around him, Right? Like, I think it's easy for us to be around God, but not in God. We can be around the things of God, and we can even participate sometimes in the things of God, but not be in, in deep relationship with him. So it's not just around him. It's not just sent from him. Like, he's not saying, like, hey, I'm going to send you peace. Like, I'm going to be up here, and I'm going to send you peace. No, he says, in me, you will have peace peace. It's found in him. It's found through relationship, through dependence, through obedience. Listen, Jesus promises truth. He promises joy and he promises peace and all of which can only be found and experienced through relationship, through dependence, and through obedience to him. Maybe you're, maybe you're feeling the absence of truth. Like you're like, what is truth? What is direction? Where am I going? What is my life? Can I encourage you? Get in Christ. Get in his word, be close to him, get in fellowship, be close to him. Maybe you're experiencing the absence of joy, like you've got so much sorrow and heaviness and grief 
and pain, can I tell you that Jesus wants to replace that heaviness with, with, with a garment of praise. He wants to replace that sorrow with joy. And so we gotta be in him, be in relationship with him, in fellowship, be close to him. Maybe you're experiencing tribulation, difficulty, trial, hardship. Can I tell you that he wants to give you peace in the midst it's not the absence of trial, but it's the presence of peace. And that is found in relationship with him, in relationship with him. Be close to him, be in him. He promises. These are, like, these are promises we can hold on to. One of the only things in the Bible that is impossible. There's only four occasions in the Bible where things are impossible. It's that, that it's impossible for the um, remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It's impossible for salvation outside of uh, the cross of Christ. It is impossible to please God without faith, and it is impossible for God to lie. Those are the things. It's impossible for God to lie. So if this is a promise from Jesus, it is impossible for him to lie. So we know that it is accurate. We know that it is truth. We know that we can hold on to it, that he's faithful. He will always be there for us. And so we need to learn to be dependent upon him, be in relationship with him, be in closeness to him. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for these promises. Lord, we thank you, like your word says, all your promises are yes and amen. We can trust them. We can hold on to them. You're faithful to us. And God, we pray that if there's any doubt in us, if there's any um, maybe hardness in our heart towards you or towards what you want to do in our lives, God, would you soften us? Would you break us? Would you reveal yourself to us? And Lord, maybe we're here this morning, we don't know you. God, would you make yourself real to us in these moments? God, I pray specifically over Exchange Church that you would provide truth. God, you would provide joy, that you would provide peace. We thank you that there's nowhere else that we can find it but in you. So God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.